Book of Acts, once again, to chapter 14. You know, when I'm taking a trip, uh, and I'm sure you're the same, taking a trip can be gone for a time. You're, you want to get everything together, tie up some loose ends. Well, I want to tie up this loose end right here of chapter 14 of the book of Acts. It marks the halfway point for the book of Acts, so we'll be halfway done. There are 28 chapters. It also concludes the first missionary of Paul and Barnabas. Their missionary journey began in chapter 13, uh, verses 2 and 3, when God had told the church to set aside these two men for the work with which he had called them. Now, the work to which he had called these men was the work of making disciples of all the nations. It was the Great Commission, sending them out, just like he sent out the, the 12 disciples at the beginning of the book of Acts. Uh, and the primary means by which this work was to be accomplished was through the preaching of the gospel. In chapter 13, you notice in verse 5, it says, And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And then you look down in verse 15. It says, uh, And after the reading of the law and the prophets, remember when they came into the synagogue and sat, the, the leaders or rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And that opened the door wide open for the Apostle Paul to stand up and preach the gospel. In chapter 13, verse 44, uh, it says uh, again on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. They were preaching once again uh, in chapter 14, verse 3. It speaks of them staying there a long time in this particular place. In Iconium, they stayed there a long time speaking boldly in the Lord. And then uh, in 14, verse 7, they were preaching the gospel there, too. That was uh, they continued to preach in Lystra uh, and Derby, the cities in Lyconia. And then uh, we, we read in verse 21 that uh, when they had preached the gospel to that city, uh, that is the city of Derby, uh, they, and made many disciples. They returned to Lystra, and then all the way back, uh, back home, visiting these very cities. It says they kept preaching the word. Now, although it was the Lord Himself who first initiated the work to which He called them, He involved the local church in Antioch, that is the whole church, in the process. In their prayers, their fastings, the laying on of hands, the sending out of the missionaries, the church was intimately involved. And the missionaries, when they finished the work, they returned back to Antioch and they reported uh, to them again, again to the whole church what God had done through them. Uh, back in the late 1980s, one of the first things I recall and appreciated about an organization called RBMS is the Reformed Baptist Mission Services uh, was the emphasis on the role of the local church in sending out missionaries to the field. Now, you may think, well, that's all I've ever heard about. But 
uh, in many churches and places and denominations, it's not the church that sends them out, but a, a particular mission agency, often an independent mission board. But uh, here it was the local church um, that had oversight of the missionary, not the independent mission board. And that impressed me about RBMS because they they had a church watching over the missionaries, sending them out. They they did incorporate other churches to help, to pray, to give, to do what they could. Uh, but it was the local church that had the authority sending them out and they reported back to them. Now, Luke gives us a summary of the report of the missionaries, uh, which they brought back to the church in Antioch. And we find that in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 14. It says, Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that He opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. And so uh, it was a report not on what these men had accomplished or even their heroic uh, uh times they had, uh, or even life-threatening times. I'm sure they told them all of the stories as well, but what Luke records, records for us is what God had done through them. Notice verse 70, 27, they reported all that God had done with them. You see, these men were the instruments which God used. And so they didn't glory in themselves but in the God who used the instrument. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there were divisions in the church because there were some that were saying, I am of Paul or I am of Apollos. They, they were gravitating towards certain teachers and preachers in the church. And that was their favorite one. And, and so they gravitated. And it was a party spirit that wasn't good. And so Paul corrected them in chapter 3, verse 5, when he says, who is Paul? And who is Apollos? Ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. That's who we are. I planted, he said. Apollos watered. But God gave the increase. So he says, it's neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Matthew Henry said, God's grace can do anything without a minister's preaching. But a minister's preaching, even Paul's, can do nothing without God's grace. And, and notice again in verse 27, uh, it reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Uh, this was still an amazement to them that God was now reaching out his hand of grace and the hand of salvation, and he was saving the Gentiles. They were the ones that were outside uh, of the covenants of Israel and so forth. But now God had included them, had brought them in. God was the one who opened the door of faith. Now, notice he calls it a door of faith to the Gentiles. It wasn't merely a door of opportunity, though the Lord gives that. But he's speaking here about the door of faith, because it's only through faith that a person is saved. 
that we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ. That's how a person is saved. And the Lord opened that door to them. Matthew Henry noted a couple of things. He said, first, there's no entering into the kingdom of Christ, but by the door of faith. We must firmly believe in Christ or we have no part in him. But secondly, he says, it is God that opens the door of faith, that opens to us the truths we are to believe, opens our hearts, like he did to Lydia, to receive them, and makes this a wide door and an effectual door into the church of Jesus Christ. And so God is the one who does this. And so they are glorifying God. Now, uh on these two verses, Charles Simeon has some several uh, has several uh, insightful points regarding the work of missions that I want to give to you. And the first one is, uh, this shows us the interest which the primitive church, or we would call the early church, the, the New Testament church, the interest which the primitive church took in the work of God. And he shows us in a couple of ways. First of all, the people showed no reluctance at parting with these two gifted men, Paul and Barnabas. That is when God said, set aside for me, Paul and Barnabas, to the work to which I have called them. Now, if you turn over to chapter 13, where we read this, we read, first of all, it says, now in the church, verse 1, now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. And he gives a list of these men. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Manian, who had been brought up uh, with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And so out of those prophets and teachers, God says, set aside for me, uh, the separate for me, Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And what you see is that the church showed no reluctance with parting with these two men. Now, the church in Antioch was was a, an established church now, but it's still they needed good teachers. And Paul and Barnabas had to shine out as as some of the brighter stars in that constellation. Uh, they're. They're listed in, in, in them as prophets and teachers. And you, you remember the emphasis of the Apostle Paul on the priority of the gift of prophecy. He does this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And he gives the, church, the gift of prophecy, that is the true gift of prophecy, he places that gift over the gift of tongues. The church in Corinth was all about tongues. But he says this in chapter 14. Pursue love. Desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Now, why was this so important to Paul? Why was it so important in that particular day and time? Well, they didn't have the New Testament scriptures yet. They had the Old Testament scriptures, which were sufficient, but there was still more they needed to know and understand about the work of Christ. That would come in time when we when we got the New Testament, when these men wrote these prophecies down and they became part of our Bible. But they didn't have that, so they needed prophets in that day. And uh, so uh, he goes on in, in 1 Corinthians 14 to say, He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands them. However, 
in the Spirit he speaks mysteries, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. And he goes on to just keep exalting that gift of prophecy. So he says, especially desire that you may prophesy. So it was a, a coveted gift in the church. Uh, a church would be strong with this many prophets. But now God has said this to them, separate them for a work which I've called them to do. He's going to send them out. They won't see them for long periods of time. Uh, but they didn't seem at all reluctant to part with these men. But then also, uh, both Paul and Barnabas stood out as exceptionally good and gifted men, and yet they expressed no reluctance at all to undertake such a dangerous mission. And it was dangerous. I mean, they, there were robbers on the way, and Paul talks about this in places when he, when he does a, gives a list of his sufferings. Uh, the, the trek would be very long and tedious and hot and sometimes cold, uh, but uh, they, they express no reluctance whatsoever to undertake such a dangerous mission. Uh, Charles Simeon said this, he said, We can have no doubt but that however much they might delight in their stated labors among the people united to them in the bonds of Christian love, how much they love being in the church and, and exercising their gifts there, they gladly address themselves to the work assigned them, where they would find little but incessant labor amidst the fiercest opposition. I mean, they're living in the comfort of the church in Antioch. God's going to send them out, and they're going to face many trials and tribulations, and we've read of those, and they are fierce. We just read this morning how Paul was stoned and they left him for dead. They drug him out of the city supposing that he was dead. Uh, that's what they had to look forward to. But Simeon goes on to say, and from their perseverance in it under such circumstances and from their pleasure which they express afterwards in the recording of all the dealings of God with them, and the happy effects of their ministrations, it is clear that one feeling pervaded the whole body, that is the whole church, that all, both ministers and people, found their chief happiness in the service of their God. Nor can we doubt that they all rejoiced in the sacrifices they had made when they saw what benefits had resulted from them to the Gentile world. They had fasted and prayed, and when these two apostles were separated for the work, and when they uh, and that they abounded in praises and thanksgiving after their return, we may well be assured they were thanking God for what He had done in and through these men. So they let them go, and when they came back, they were happy to see Him and rejoiced not just in seeing them again, but in what God had done. Uh, they they rejoiced. And so, uh, then he goes on to, to, in the second point, to give some instructions that we can derive from this passage. And first of all, we can, from the dispositions that these men manifested and the church manifested, we can clearly see this, that the work of God, that is taking the gospel to the lost, is confessedly the greatest of all concerns. This was something they relished, something they rejoiced in. Uh, Simeon said this, he said, 
what is there that can be compared with it? That is, with this work of taking the gospel. What can be compared with it? The government of kingdoms is little in comparison. The rise and fall of the four great empires would scarcely have been deemed worthy of notice. But for the influence they had in introducing the Messiah's kingdom, which was to supersede and survive them all, it is the establishment of this kingdom which God had in view from before the foundation of the world. All his eternal counsels have had respect to it. In other words, he's speaking of that covenant of redemption. Back in eternity, <coughs> this was God's plan. That his son would have a kingdom. That his son would be given a people for his own possession. It was this kingdom that's the most important kingdom in the entire world. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? And we hear of things going on in other countries and and this country, and the wars here, and, that, and they're all important to us. But the kingdom of God should be the most important thing of all. This, he says, supersedes and survives all other kingdoms. It's the establishment of this kingdom, which God had in view before the foundation of the world. All His eternal counsels have had respect to it. All His dispensations toward the whole world have been ordered in subserviency to it. In other words, what God is doing in the world, it's really all about his church and his kingdom. The church is despised by men. They think we could do without it. We could do without religion altogether. But God says, this is my work. All his perfections, he said, are displayed in it. All his purposes completed and everyone that labors for the advancement of it is a worker together with God. That's what Paul calls laborers in the field. They are workers together with God. But secondly, we see also that this work of God is an object for which we all, according to our ability, should labor. We think of the missionaries laboring or we think of the pastors laboring. But this is really a work for which we should all labor. Again, quoting Simeon, he said, the advancement of the Redeemer's kingdom is not the work of ministers only, but of all of the people also. It can scarcely be credited how much an efficient ministry is aided by the cooperation of private Christians in all the different works and labors of love. I think of the various ones that pray for the ministry here. Pray for the preaching who even come early to church so they can pray for the ministry of the Word of God. That is vital in a church. Charles Spurgeon counted that to be the, the secret of his success. And you can see how it would be because if we go back to uh, the earlier points about this was a labor of God. This is something God was doing. This work that they did, these conversions they saw... This is what God was doing. Paul couldn't do that. Paul couldn't save a single soul. He couldn't bring a single person into the kingdom of God. He could tell them about the kingdom. He could exhort them. He could plead with them with tears. But nothing will move a person to come to Christ unless God the Father moves them. Jesus said, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's why prayer is so important, because what are we doing when we pray? We're asking God to do a work. 
that we cannot do. And so he uh, he goes on to say this. He said, many will listen to them, that is to the ordinary Christian, who would regard the admonition of pastors as a mere official ceremony or an impertinent intrusion. <laughs> Indeed, it is not possible for ministers to do everything. Even Moses required 70 elders to assist him. And at his day and in this day, it is only the united exertions of many that the work of God in general and that the missions in particular can be carried forward. Nor can it be imagined that the poor are incapable of affording aid to the common cause. Think about somebody who says, you know, I don't have anything. What do I have? I don't have these gifts to teach and I, I don't have money to give. He says, don't imagine that they're incapable of affording aid for they, if they cannot assist materially, either by intellectual efforts or, or money contributions, they may, by their prayers for the divine blessing, affect more than the whole world combined could by their own personal exertions. And so this is something that we all ought to take responsibility. And then the last point he makes about this is that the success of it should be to us the source of the sublimest joy. With what the great, with what raised expert, with what raised expectations did the church of Antioch meet together when they came to hear this report? And with what joy did they hear that God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles? I think the whole assembly lost for a time all thought of their own personal welfare, being swallowed up with the delightful contemplation of the welfare of others. Here were these pagans, these, these idol worshippers, coming into the kingdom of God. These who were walking in darkness have seen the great light. These who had no hope now have the hope of the ages. He says, surely, uh, I'm sure they, they lost all thought of their own personal welfare, being swallowed up with the delightful contemplation of the welfare of others. Surely, he says, with one heart and with one voice, they glorified God for the mercy that he had given to a sinful and idolatrous world. And should not a similar feeling pervade us Gentiles in relation to the Jews? <laughs> he says, if there be any awakening among them, truly, if there be, as in Ezekiel's vision, any stir among the dry bones, whether they be of those of Jews or Gentiles or of persons bearing the Christian name, it should fill our souls with gratitude in our hearts and our lips with praise. So this ought to be something that we rejoice in. Uh, when they came back and gave the report of all that God had done, how He'd opened the door, they were glad and they rejoiced. And uh, this was a work of the entire church. So this report they gave them shows just how involved the local church was in the work of missions. And then it says that Paul and Barnabas stayed there a long time with the disciples. Uh, I'm sure they ministered to them, but they were being ministered to. Uh, Paul recovering from his wounds and from the long, arduous trip and uh, the difficulties. They needed some R&R. And so they, they got it. But you see how they got it there in the church. It didn't say they went off to Florida and, and fished for a while. <laughs> 
like I'm going to do. No, they, they, they stayed with the church and that's where they found their rest and their relaxation. They wanted to be with the people of God. And so they were and God blessed them. And so we've come to the end of that first missionary journey. It's certainly not going to be his last, uh, but it's the first and what a, what a wonderful start to see how God God Himself opened the door of faith. And so as we come together to pray, that's what we want to pray for. And we want to thank God for things we're seeing even in our own midst. Among the young people and some of the visitors that have been coming, God seems to be doing a great work in opening the eyes of the blind and drawing them into the kingdom of God, delivering them from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. These are things that we can rejoice in and pray for and rejoice all the more. All right, would you pray with me? Our Father in